Aloha Church. We are so excited to be continuing our series in the book of Revelation. This weekend we're looking at Revelation 13 and the famous passage about the mark of the beast. We're going to look at history and what history and the early church fathers have told us about the mark of the beast. And we're going to look at uh, if there are signs today, if the mark of the beast is around today. But our hope throughout this series is to help us think critically, to help us think uh, maybe through our presuppositions and to maybe consider other views, at least, if nothing else, at least to have an understanding of what these other views say. Oftentimes what happens is that we uh, are taught one thing, let's say about the mark of the beast, let's say about the book of Revelation. And what we do is we only read, we only listen to, and we only watch all of the views that support what we've been told. And we forget these other views here. So my encouragement is that let's have a robust approach to Revelation, figure out what are some of the interpretive styles of different passages in Revelation, and then let's come to our own conclusions. I think that is a much more fruitful approach to Scripture. And my hope throughout this series is to do kind of a flyover of Revelation, and then throughout the week offer other resources so you can go deeper. So for example, every Monday we are releasing an interview that I've done with Dr. Joe Grana of Hope International University. And it's a follow-up on, on the weekend's message. So if you're not on our emailing list, make sure you do that. Um, and, and also on Thursday evenings, we have a book club on a book by Eugene Peterson called Reverse Thunder. And if you want to join us, we just finished uh, our first week of the book club, and that went really well. You are more than welcome to join us on Thursday nights. Just email kcc at kaimakichristian.org, kcc at kaimakichristian.org. And if you just want to be in the book club and not say anything and just listen, you're more than welcome to do that as well. So we want to go deeper. We want to offer resources and we want you to know that there are so many good resources out there and we want to be a place where we could offer those resources. But let's be believers who think critically, think critically, and who process things and who wants to learn about scripture and go deeper in scripture. And let's be believers who fall more and more and more and more in love with Jesus. Amen. He has given us his word. Let's read his word and let's let his word change us from the inside out. Amen. You can write amen in the comment section on there. Just write amen, amen, amen. So last week we highlighted four of the main interpretive styles in the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at some of those and how they relate to the mark of the beast. So we looked at the historicist approach. The historicist approach looks at the revelation through um, the like a survey of the entire church. And this was popular until about the 16th century. And then there's the preterist approach. That is, fulfillment is in the past shortly after the book of Revelation was written. Then there's the futurist approach. The futurist approach is that everything in Revelation after chapter 3 
will be fulfilled in the future. And this is the most popular view in our world today. And then there's the idealist approach. The idealist approach looks at the book of Revelation as transcendent principles and reoccurring themes. And one of the great resources I'm, I'm using, there's a lot of resources I'm using to, to put this into my notes, is this book right here called Revelation, uh, Four Views. And it looks at these different passages in the book of Revelation. So, for example, you just open it up there. You see these four main views, historicist, preterist, futurist, idealist. And if you're like, I wonder what these views, you know, this passage means to these different views. This is a great commentary, very uh, uh, great for the common reader. And I highly recommend it. It's by Steve Gregg and it's po uh, published by Thomas Nelson. But it's called Revelation. Four views and uh, and highly recommend it there. So the mark of the beast. Let's get right into it. Revelation chapter thirteen. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth that ordered them to set up an image and honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Wow. That's powerful. There's a lot in this passage. And let's highlight some of the uh, areas of what we just read. Um and, and first, before we do that, let's go back a little bit in history, because remember, uh, the book of Revelation refers a lot to the Old Testament. So we have to see what some of these images are when we go to the Old Testament. In Revelation 13, there is a sea beast and then there's a land beast. And then in Daniel chapter 7... There are four beasts. And then in Daniel chapter 7, it says one of those beasts is like the Son of Man. And that is referring to the kingdom of God. In Daniel chapter 7, the, the four beasts represents uh, empires, uh, uh, nations, things like that. In Revelation 13, the land beast is the spirit of the evil empire. And then we get to this mark of the beast. And the historicists believe that the Latin language, which was prevalent, was the mark of the beast. They look at this word Latin or Latino, and, you know, we're talking first century here and second century and third century. And then they'll go, huh, these letters, if you give them numeric values, add up to 666. And then we see in the fourth century, the fifth century, sixth century, the, the, the rise of, of the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Then some of these early... Uh, Theologians uh, who who were uh, you know believe in the historic approach, they go, oh, it must mean the 
Pope. It must mean everyone having to do with the Latin language. And, uh, and then they would take that. Now, this is an outdated approach. Nobody uh, seriously subscribes to this that I know of. Then there's the preterist approach. The preterist approach, uh, they look at this number of 666 and they say it's a clear understanding that John wanted the audience, his audience, his readers, to understand that the mark of the beast, the name of the beast, is Emperor Nero. Because when you look at Nero and you uh, write out his name in Hebrew, Caesar Nero or Neron Kaiser, the values of the seven Hebrew words total 666. Now it's kind of interesting if you think about it that they use the Hebrew letters to calculate 666 and that was actually common in apocalyptic literature. Also, it may have been a way for John to kind of write in a way where the Romans wouldn't have known because the Romans knew Greek and they knew Latin, but they didn't know Hebrew. So maybe it was a way to let his readers know that he was referring to Nero. And in regards to buying and selling, you had this huge imperial cult. The, the, the Caesar was seen as God. He was worshipped. They had a huge image. And historians tell us that there's a huge image of the Caesar where you had to worship. And if you didn't worship the God, uh, the, the statue, if you didn't worship Caesar, and if you didn't have a mark on your right hand or on your forehead, if you didn't have this type of mark, you literally could not purchase. And you literally could be put to death because the Caesar had to be worshipped. They didn't care if you worship other gods. But, but the empire there, the Roman Empire, wanted you to worship Caesar as God, and they didn't care if you worshipped other gods. But here's what's fascinating. John specifically mentions that the mark is on the hands and the forehead. Every Jewish reader who John was writing to, this Jewish audience, they would have understood immediately what would have come to mind was the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 8. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home or when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And then we have the futurist approach. The futurist approach looks at this passage and they see a cashless worldwide economy in the future. So the futurist approach sees a cashless worldwide economy in the future. And additionally, everyone who doesn't have this mark on their wrist or on their forehead cannot buy or sell goods. One futurist commentator says it this way. The most terrible persecution is connected with this idol worship. The most awful tyranny exists then of all commerce for all commerce is controlled by the beast. Whoever does not have the mark 
on hand and forehead cannot buy nor sell. And whoever does not worship the beast will be killed. And those who worship the beast and receive the mark are lost souls. And then we have the idealist approach. The idealist approach believes that compliance with the anti-Christian system is when one accepts the mark. That is that this is a symbolic mark that, that anybody who has this mark is somebody who has sold out to the world's system, that has given their life to the world's ways, so to speak. So what is the mark of the beast all about? What is this mark of the beast when it comes to the Old Testament? Now remember, there are 404 verses in the Old Testament. And of the 404 verses in the Old Testament, 518 are referring to the Old Testament. So 404 verses in the book of Revelation, I think I misspoke, 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And of the 404, there's 518 references in the Old Testament. So let's look at the Old Testament. We have uh, a famous passage in Ezekiel, um, and, and that is referring that the ref, that John is referring to Ezekiel chapter nine. Ezekiel uh, says that God marks the righteous to save them from future judgment. Remember that God marks the righteous to save them from future judgment. Ezekiel nine four. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So in Ezekiel 9, God says, put a mark to protect people from future judgment. In Revelation 7, in verses 1 to 3, we read this, and this is an allusion, a, a connection to Ezekiel 9. So it's, it's John talking about what happened already in Ezekiel 9, Revelation 7, 3. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servant of our God. So then we have our passage in Ezekiel, which is contrasted with what happens in Revelation 13. Because in Revelation 13, it talks about the mark of the beast. And in Revelation 7, it talks about the mark of the righteous. So what's going on here is you can have the mark of the beast or you can have the mark of the lamb, which is for the righteous. Mark of the beast or mark of the lamb. That's the mark of Jesus. Obviously, we want the mark of Jesus. In Genesis 4, there's another passage about uh, being marked. You might remember in Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel. And we read this in Genesis 4, 15. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And there's a number of other passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that refers to these symbolic or spiritual marks that may not be necessarily a physical and a literal mark. Old Testament scholar Michael Brown and New Testament scholar Craig Keener, they put it this way. Throughout Revelation, people are identified 
by markers recounted or seen by John. Thus the righteous have a name on them. Babylon has a name on her, although she is figurative. Jesus comes back with a name on him. And so there's a number of references to being marked that may not be a physical mark. And what we see here in Revelation 13 is that there is a mark of the beast, but, but we have to make something clear and, and let all that just sink in. Because I know I probably have just given you a lot. You might feel like you're drinking water out of a fire hydrant. <laughs> That's how I feel like every single week when I'm spending hours and hours and hours on this. And I'm trying to just to bring it down. And, um, and, and, but you can always, always, listen to this again on, on, on YouTube and write notes and process this and ask questions of the book club and so forth. But the original manuscripts, the original ma biblical manuscripts did not have chapter and verses um, on them. They didn't even have um, spaces or punctuation. It was, it was very different. Monks actually, Christian monks actually put um, the sections and the chapters and the verses in the Bible that we have say, which is a good thing. However, there are some downsides to it. One of the downsides is sometimes they put a, a section where, where like the chapter ended as if the author was done with that thought. And you go, okay, chapter 13 is done. However, Revelation 14, 1 is connected to Revelation 13. It's one continuous thought. And um, and so what we have here in Revelation 14 is another type of mark. Revelation 14, 1, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So we see in Revelation 13, people marked with the mark of the beast. Then we see in Revelation 14, people marked with the name of the Lamb. Wow. I want to be marked with the name of the Lamb. There's other passages that talks about that we're marked or we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's not necessarily a physical mark, but it is something that's inherently uh, spiritual, uh, and uh, in other words, the contrast is this. When it talks about the mark of the beast, when it talks about when things get bad, and things are bad now, but things will get worse. But the book of Revelation gives us hope and comfort that no matter how bad things get here on earth, we have eternal hope. No matter how much suffering we go through, we will be with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We will be with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end for all eternity. The revelation is absolutely crystal clear on that. That though we might endure suffering for a time being here, we're going to be with the Lord forever. So the question really, when it comes to the mark of the beast, is where is our allegiance? Whether one believes it's a, it's a literal mark or a, a, a figurative spiritual mark, the, the, the main idea behind it is where is our allegiance? So John is confronting his original readers 
and us today with the question of where is our allegiance in the small things, in the big things, where is our allegiance? What do we give to the kingdom of the world that we should be giving to Jesus, the kingdom of God? In our everyday lives, how much time do we spend trying to focus on the kingdom of the world, focus on worldly things? How much time do we spend um, in the political realm as opposed to the theological realm? How much time do we spend in the sports realm as opposed to the godly realm? And so forth and so on. Where is our allegiance? In Revelation 1.10, there's a phrase that's used only one time in the entire Bible. Only one time in the entire Bible. And it's the phrase, the Lord's Day. In the comment section, go ahead and write the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day, in Revelation 1.10, on the Lord's Day, I'll say it again, on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches on the Lord's day. Keep writing in the comments section on the Lord's day. This phrase on the Lord's day, the Lord's day is in direct confrontation to a celebration in Asia Minor called, you ready? Ready for it? Emperor's day. So we have the Lord's day and we have the Emperor's day. The Emperor's day is where you would celebrate the emperor, Caesar, ruler of all of Rome, and you would declare your allegiance to him. You would declare him God. You would declare him supreme. You would declare him Lord. And he was your all in all, so to speak. And this was the emperor's day. And everyone knew about this. So when John uses the Lord's day, huh, he's being extremely subversive to the Roman Empire. He is setting up his vision as a story of conflict where his readers are forced to choose the way of Jesus or the way of Caesar and empire. So in understanding the historical context of Revelation, the more we understand it, the original readers would have recognized that Caesar was one of the kings, one of the people that he was talking about kind of, you know, beneath the surface, and that Caesar was somebody that they knew that living in this area of Asia Minor, that the Roman Empire ruled and had control over, that you had to pay your allegiance. You had to give your patriotism to Caesar. You had to give your loyalty to Caesar. You had to give it to the empire, and you had to do it by worshiping Caesar. And in fact, historians also tell us that they had a big statue, a big statue where they would worship, uh, they would worship the Caesar, they would worship the king of Rome. So John is confronting his original audience with these images that say to them, you're trying to give the empire the space that is reserved for God. John is confronting his original audience saying, do not bow down to that big statue that you see all the time. 
Do not declare that the Caesar is king no matter how bad things get. John has said, I know you can't sell things. I know you can't buy things, but this is temporary for the kingdom that is coming. The kingdom of heaven to earth is so much better and you will live with the creator for all eternity. He doesn't sugarcoat how bad things were for them. He didn't sugarcoat how bad things would become. But he says, take hold. Don't put the mark of the beast on. Don't sell out to the world system. Don't be somebody who says, ah, I'm going to compromise in every single way. No, be someone who stands firm. And the mark of the beast is not, I don't believe it's some secret thing that we're going to get. The mark of the beast is a willingness to defy God. A willingness to say, God, I don't need you. I don't need you, God. It's not some secret mark. It's not something that you're going to get that's going to forever nullify your life and the grace of God because you accidentally got the mark of the beast. There's all these conspiracy theories out there. We're going to talk about that those conspiracy theories next week. But just to say this, the mark of the beast is something that we willingly do. And in the future, whether the mark of the beast, in, in our future, the mark of the beast is a physical mark or something like that. Uh, I don't necessarily think that, but if it is, yeah, don't get that mark. But I think more of it's a denial that that we need God. It's more of a uh, affirmation that we need the world system. So no matter what happens, Let's be marked with the blood of the lamb. Amen. Let's be marked with the blood of the lamb. And so when the angels and the spiritual forces, and all those things are, are, are going by, they see this mark on us. The spiritual mark that says that is a follower of Jesus marked by the blood of the lamb. I want to be marked by the blood of the lamb. Do you want to be marked by the blood of the lamb? That is Jesus Christ dying on the cross, rising again for our sins. So here's my challenge that I will leave all of us with. Write down at least one area that the Lord is showing you where you need to put Jesus first. And this is something just between you and God. You don't need to put in the comment section, but write down one area that the Lord is showing you where you need to put Jesus first. And as you do that, really seek your heart. Really seek the Lord and say, God, how am I putting other things, other stuff, other, you fill in the blank, before you? And Lord, help me to put you first. And maybe even ask the Lord, how do I do that? God bless you.